We're going to look at Psalm 95. We're going to look at the entirety of this psalm. Uh, it is our practice at New Covenant to preach expositionally. Somebody was telling me this week, you know, I really like it when you preach book by book and text by text. And I said, you know, I really like that too. And I sort of missed that already. But one of the great things about the psalms is they are their own context. So in a sense, we're, we're doing an isolated text by text again this morning, looking at Psalm 95, since it is its own unique context. And we are going to read the entirety of the psalm and look at this together. Before we do, let me again briefly pray and ask the Lord to uh, powerfully bless the preaching of his word to our souls. Father, we do ask you to open the heavens and to pour out a divine blessing. We pray, our God, that you would hear our voices this morning, that we lift them up to you, the triune God, and we acknowledge, our God, that we are nothing before you. And yet you have made us your people and the sheep of your pasture, and that you have said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so, our Father, we pray that together with your Son and Spirit, you would do a powerful and mighty wonder-working, moving, gracious, uh, experiential work in our souls this morning. We pray, our God, that you would fix our minds on things above, that you would set our minds on you, that you would remove from us all distractions, and that you would send forth your light and your truth and lead us even to the altar, to the cross of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would bless this portion of our service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 95, there David, who is said to be the psalmist in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, now writes, So come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, and his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in at Meribah, in the day at Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. And said, these are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my way. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, a few months ago, Anna and I went to a concert of really one of the best singer-songwriters, in my opinion, in America. And I was so excited, and I had no idea what to expect. I thought I didn't know the venue we were going to. And I thought, oh, you know, I just hope we get a good seat. So I got us there like two hours early, much to the, the chagrin of my wife. And, and let's get the best seats we can get. And we, we find out that it's in a little theater. And I had no idea how many people were going to be there, but it looked like this room held about 100 people, maybe a third of this room. And um, 
And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be wonderful. 50 people. It was, it was amazing. 50-person show. And at one point during the show, as, um, uh, his name was Damien Gerardo, as, as he was giving this explanation of one of his songs, somebody in that room yelled out, you're my idol. And uh, Damien Gerardo said, don't say that, man. And it got really awkward. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And my mind started going through Romans 1 and all that Paul says about, you know, uh, how men exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And they make for themselves, you know, carved images and they worship fish and men and everything and give themselves over to all sexual immorality. And, and, and Paul says that's worship. And, and this, this guy saying, you're my idol, was saying, I worship you. And Damon Drado knew that. And he said, don't worship me. And, and then he played a couple more songs and he came back and it was so fascinating. He started talking about the songs and things he struggled with and sin and depression. And he said at the end of that, he said, that's why you shouldn't say I'm your idol. It was interesting. It was him pushing that back and pushing that away. And I say that by way of contrast with what we read in the scriptures. And here in Psalm 95, the Lord, uh, far from saying, don't say that, don't say you're my God, don't say I worship you, is saying, come, worship me. That's the stark contrast. The true and living God welcomes his people, commands his people, calls his people to worship him. You know, sometimes people say, um, you know, well, these people worship and these people don't worship. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something. We are all worshipers. That's the point of Romans 1. We are all giving our affection, our time, our worship to something. You know, Tim Keller has this great meditation on what worship is. He says, worship is not just coming and doing a duty. That's how we may think about what this is. Well, we got to go do our duty. Just coming and doing a duty. Let's get it over with. Keller says, worship is not just coming and doing a duty. Worship is recognizing that you have already assigned something ultimate value in your life. Wow, that's so good. Worship is recognizing that you have already assigned something or someone ultimate value in your life. Worship is a process of every time you reflect on him through singing, every time you reflect and praise him, every act of worship is pulling your heart off of those things which control you and onto the one thing that will not distort your life. I think that's profound. And so when we come to a psalm like Psalm 95, and it's such a marvelous psalm, it's one of the richest psalms of worship. It is one of the richest psalms in which we find the call to worship, where God is summoning his people. He is saying, come, come before me with thanksgiving. Come before me with praise. Come into my presence. Come and sing to me for joy. Come and bow low. Come and worship and bow down. We see how important it is because the psalm is recalibrating our hearts to say there is one to whom we must assign ultimate glory and we must come and give him the honor due to his name. Well, we want to see three things as we come to look at Psalm 95 this morning. First, we're going to consider the call to worship. Secondly, we're going to consider the reasons for worship. And finally, we're going to consider the response in worship, the call to worship, the reasons for worship. 
and the response in worship. We'll notice at first glance, you might say, well, this isn't God calling anybody to worship. This is the psalmist. And it feels a little bit like the psalmist, David, who is writing this, is running through the streets of Jerusalem and he's calling everybody to come with him to go and worship. That's what it feels like. And maybe he was doing that. He's, he's going by everybody's house and he's saying, come, 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 let's go sing to the Lord. Oh, come, let's go sing praises to God. Come with me to the house of God. And while David is most certainly doing something like that, and you'll notice that call is there in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then again in verse 6, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. There are three, three times the psalmist is calling others to worship him. But we know from the book of Hebrews, that there is another author of this psalm. It's one of those wonderful things. Psalm 95, by the way, takes up a a massive portion of what is, in my humble yet very accurate opinion, the best book of the Bible, Hebrews. And I will argue with you over that. I know there's Romans and Galatians, I get it. Those are the three, and if you have another, you're wrong. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. And Hebrews... Hebrews is so massively important. It unlocks the whole Bible. And right in the middle, there's like two to three chapters of exposition about Psalm 95 and the importance of the word today and the importance of God speaking to his people in gathered weekly Lord's Day worship as he's doing today. And, and the response to that, and, and the writer sees in Psalm 95 these unbelievable riches, and it's this massively important psalm. But what the writer does, it's so important, he says there's another author. He says, therefore the Holy Spirit says, therefore the Holy Spirit says. That's how the writer to the Hebrews introduces Psalm 95. The Holy Spirit is the author, and that means the Holy Spirit is the one calling God's people to worship. So when we read, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, O come, let us worship and bow down, God is calling his people to worship. Now, it's one of the things we do here at New Covenant that not every church does. Most Reformed churches do this. We have a call to worship. Everything before that, you might think this is semantics. It is not semantics. Everything before that call to worship can be more casual, can be more uh, glib, can, can uh, be less focused, uh, can be more frenetic. Um, there can be a lot of things that happen. But once God calls his people to worship... We are coming into the presence of the living God in the gathered assembly, and we are, we are responding to that call. Um, one of my friends, by the way, it's very interesting because the call to worship um, is the beginning of the service. The benediction is the end of the service. And, and the benediction, the benedictum, the good word, God is sending his people out with a good word, the blessing, just like the ironic blessing. And one of my friends who is um, one of the best uh, music directors in the PCA, Greg Wilbur, made the point, I had never thought about this before, but a couple years ago he pointed out to me that the order of our service from the call to the benediction should be a microcosm of the whole of the Christian life. 
So that what is happening is, is God every week, every Lord's Day. That's why we do this repeatedly. That's why we follow the same order of our worship. Because God is, is reminding his people. There was, there was a time when we were far from God, away from God. And, and God called us to himself. He called us. He said, come to me, follow me. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. And, and we came to him. And then we go through the other parts of the service. There's conviction of sin, the reading of the law. We're convicted of our sin. And then the gospel comes to bear. And we realize there's gospel mercy and comfort and assurance. And then and there's singing. There's joy. And there's prayer. And, and the Christian life is developed. And there's instruction. There's teaching. There's discipleship under the ministry of the word, especially under the preaching of the word. And, and then there's, there's the, the recommitment of the Lord's love to us and the affirmation and the supper and all of these parts of the Christian life and then God sends us out into the world to be fruitful with his blessing and while that is somewhat artificial perhaps and you might say well that's clever or cute it is actually quite true our God has has called us to himself now here's one of the really interesting things about this and it's something maybe you would miss if you read this too um, indifferently Um, the Bible opens with creation and the fall. And, and when Adam and Eve sin, when our first parents disobey, God comes to them and he says, go, get out of my presence. He exiles them out of Eden. He drives them away from his felt presence and his sensible presence. He, he bans them from uh, the, his, his, his dwelling place and he bans them from the hope of eternal life and he puts the flaming swords. He says, go. And that's, that's, that's the right and just response of the infinitely holy God to our sin. But here, and this begs the question, how, how, can, how can we miss that? He's not saying go, go from my presence. He's saying come, come, let us worship the Lord. Come, let us sing his praises. Let us come before him. Look at this. Notice verse two. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Now, I want to say something before I look at the, the aspect of coming into God's presence and what we're being called to. Notice that each of the three imperatives, the calls to worship, come in verse 1, come in verse 2, come in verse 6, are followed by let us. You see, there's that corporate nature again. God is collectively calling his people together. He's saying, I want my people to be together, gathered together because my worship and my glory is reflected in my worship as different people from different backgrounds who don't know each other. You know, um, I mean, that's one of the wonders of, of responding to the call of worship is that I could worship right now with a sister in Christ who is from Afghanistan and, and that we have nothing in common. Don't speak the same language. She's a woman. I'm a man. I could spend time with her. Not much. But I could spend time with her. And we could worship together. And, and we could worship the same God together. And, and there's something about the glory of God being reflected off of him through the worship of his people that happens in the gathered assembly that doesn't happen when we are worshiping him individually in our homes and on a day-to-day basis. And one of the things that we find in the Psalms is there's always this call. Come, let us. Come, let us. 
Come, let us. God is always calling his people, just like he did for Israel. He called them to worship him at the mountain. He gathered them together. He brought Moses up. He sent Moses down. He he was calling the people to worship him. And so this call is always corporate in nature. It is always collective in nature. We, We need each other to worship God. That's a wonderful thought. Uh, The writer of Hebrews will pick up on that and will actually say one of the benefits and one of the reasons why it's so important is as we don't forsake the assembly, as is the the pattern of some, Hebrews 10.24, but we come together, we exhort one another day by day and so much more as we see the day approaching. We exhort one another not to depart from the living God. Come, we essentially say to each other, we echo the call to worship. When God is calling us to worship, we ought to say to others, come. God is calling us, come to worship, come to gather, come to praise him, come to sing to him. And notice, it is a, it is a multifaceted call. Um, it is a call to, first of all, sing to the Lord. Um, the psalmist, by the way, links praise and singing I believe 137 times in the Psalms. Uh, He speaks of praise 137 times in the Psalms. He he speaks a a huge number, a portion of those. He links praising him with singing to him. And, you know, I was reflecting on this last year. And I don't know if you've ever had these kind of thoughts where you're thinking about something you've always done and you've just never really thought about it. And the Lord makes you realize some facet of it you had never thought about. And it, it seems like a simple thought, I guess. Maybe it won't be profound to you, but I thought, well, what kind of God must the, the true and living God be that he commands us to sing loud, joyful praises to him? Like, like an evil God wouldn't say, hey, come sing loud praises to me for all of the goodness and bounty, both in providence and redemption. Come sing with thanksgiving for all that I've done for you in the overflow of my goodness. What kind of God is he? Think about that. That's the only God. The only God is a God that commands us to come and sing. That's why we should sing loud praises, noises. Make a noise. Most of us do. Sounds like noise. Just make a noise. Loud praise. Notice, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And then notice what the psalmist says. Worship includes coming into his presence with thanksgiving. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky because I actually had someone ask me last year, you know, every time we're in worship and you pray, and this is someone that had massive theological training, uh, they said to me, um, you always pray that the Lord would come and make his presence known, but isn't God everywhere? And I said, yes, God is everywhere. God fills the heavens and the earth. He is before us and behind us. His hand is upon us. The psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. Your hand will guide me. If I go to hell, then you're there. If I go to heaven, you're there. He's everywhere. He fills the heavens and the earth. But there is another sense where the Bible speaks of the presence of the Lord as being something that he preserves for the places in which his people come to worship him. And he even, in a sense, makes us almost feel that presence at times. The Puritans sometimes talk about the felt presence of God. That The, the psalmist says, it's good for me to be near to God. Here, notice what David's saying. Come, let us come into his presence. You know, if I could ask you to commit to praying for one thing, 
this year, I couldn't do it. I could ask you to commit to praying for lots of things, but I might ask you to pray that we would experience the felt presence of God in corporate worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. If all of us would commit to that, and God would come in a powerful way, I've experienced that in worship. That's not something music does. That's cheap emotional fixes for people. This is real. This is the, David, when he is preaching um, at Pentecost in Acts, and he's calling the people to repent, he says, repent and turn to the Lord, that times of refreshing may come from his presence. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's, that's what the psalmist is saying. Come, let us enter into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's come into the presence of the living God with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then we are told, and it, it may seem a little bit more implicit, that what we are being called to is to sit under the ministry of God's word. You know, sometimes people have a hard time with uh, reformed churches because we are so word heavy. I think we can be imbalanced at times, but, but you realize very quickly when you read the scriptures that the word of God is central. The ministry of the word in worship is central. That's why the great pulpits in the great churches of the reformers were central. They weren't off to the side as a little lectern for a homily. They were central. The word is central. The ministry of the word of God everywhere is what God uses for building up his people, establishing his people, redeeming his people, sanctifying his people, enabling his people to worship them. True worship is, is when we enter in, in the power of the spirit, by the embrace of truth as God's word is ministered, collectively gathering together to say, we have an object that is supreme in our thinking and that draws our hearts off of everything else that we constantly want to give our affection and time to. Um, The psalmist is here teaching us to love the call to worship. God, and Lincoln Duncan has said this so helpfully, God is bidding you to leave your work behind. When you come to worship, he is bidding you to leave your work behind and to leave your cares behind and to come to him. That's what we're doing when we come here to worship. We are leaving the burdens, the concerns, the cares, the anxieties, the objections, the coldness, the weariness. I mean, the writer here will call worship a rest. It's part of that rest that we're hoping for. It's, it is gospel rest. It is gospel Sabbath rest to come and to enter into the presence of God. We're leaving our work. We're coming. We're coming into his presence. Um, but then secondly, and, and it's hard to miss this, the, the psalmist is giving us the reasons for worship. Notice there in verse 3 and then again in verse 7, you have, you have four. Four. Come, let us worship. Let us enter into his presence. Four. Notice verse uh, 2. <clears throat> verse, I'm sorry. Notice verse um, Three, four, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, and his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. And then in verse seven, four, he is our God, and we are his people, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So now what the psalmist is doing is giving us the rationale. Why should I worship? Why should I care? Why should I listen to you, Nick? How do I know you're right? People say all kinds of crazy stuff. 
And other people are telling us their God wants to be worshipped and I got this kid worshipping Damien Dorado. Who's right? <laughs> um, and the psalmist is going to say, here's the reasons. Number one, he's the creator. That's reason enough, isn't it? Um, the depths of the ocean. You know, in all our brilliance, in all of our human ingenuity and brilliance, we can't even figure out how deep the ocean is. Like, we're talking about, like, going to Mars. <laughs> we're talking about, like, measuring and dating the universe we can't even measure. And we can't even measure the ocean on the only planet we're actually on. <laughs> we can't, and we can't defeat the common cold. I know I've told you that before. You're just stuck with it. Um, we can't measure the depths of the ocean. It's scary. We were watching a movie, me, Anna, and the boys, about these three guys who uh, their plane went down in um, World War II in Japanese-occupied territory, and they're out in the rife boat uh, life preserver for 35 days and, and um, trying to survive. And, uh, and there's, um, there's all these sharks swarming them, in the ocean and these cool shots of fake sharks and my boys are like those sharks are fake and and uh and Jude goes I'm never going in the ocean and he said I'm not even going in Papa's lake <laughs> and and yet God knows the depths and and all those teeming fish and things we don't even know what they are down there the the, the fish with the lights that light up all down there he made the depths and the mountains. The mountains are his. The valleys are his. The trees are his. Notice the psalmist is saying, here's why you should worship him. He, he's, he's the great God. He's the only God. He's the king over all the earth. There are no other gods. He is king. He created the world in his hand. That's a metaphor. He doesn't have a hand. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains. The seas his. And, you know, it's almost funny, isn't it? I've often thought this, and I know I've said this to you before. When I read the Psalms, sometimes I get the sense that David is, is sort of like, I want to say this reverently, but sort of like just slapping us across the face and saying, hey, wake up. Like, you even have to say that. It's, it's ironic. that Why would you even have to say that? It's like, the sea's his too. That's his too. It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> You know, in Genesis 1, it's got that great throwaway verse, right? He made the, the sun and moons. Uh, he also made the stars. It's kind of like, like, oh, yeah, he also made all the stars. It's <laughs> such a great verse. That's why we should worship him. He deserves our worship because he is the creator God, the king over all the earth. And he deserves our worship because we are his creatures. We are part of his creation. We live in his world. We see his glory. The earth declares the glory of the Lord. The heavens Make known his handiwork. And then notice there is, there is an intimation in verse 1, another reason in verse 1. Why should we come and worship Yahweh? Why should we come and worship the triune God? Because he is the rock of our salvation. He is not only the creator, he is the redeemer. He has redeemed us. He has given us redemption through the blood of Jesus. That's, by the way, that's how we could go from God saying go to God saying come. There is there's a savior, there's a sacrifice, there's salvation, there's redemption. How can we not want to come and worship? You know, I, as a new Christian, I remember thinking, and I had been brought out of a lot of darkness, so to be fair, it was a radical kind of thing. 
But I remember thinking, I just, I wanted to be in worship all the time. And I, I, I didn't understand how everybody didn't feel that way. Because all I knew is, he redeemed me. Why wouldn't I want to sing his praises? Why wouldn't I want to sing praise to the Savior? Why wouldn't I want to be in his presence? Why wouldn't I want to hear his word? Why? It doesn't make sense. He is the rock of our salvation. That's, that's sufficient enough for us to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to come into his presence with thanksgiving and to make a joyful noise with songs of praise. And then there's this other reason. Notice, um, connected with that in verse 6 and 7, that the writer says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Now, I'm going to say this to try to help bolster. Why should we want to respond to the call to worship? Why should we want to come with loud songs of thanksgiving? In addition to everything else, the great king over all the earth, who is not everybody's God, covenantally and redeemingly, has said, I'm your God. I'm going to be a God to you. I'm going to be your God. The living God has said to his people, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. That is astonishing. All the people on the face of the earth, God says that to the redeemed, who by his grace he has redeemed. And he said, I am the covenant Lord. I am Yahweh. I am going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Now, I used to think also as a young Christian when I heard people say, oh, my God, or just flippantly use the Lord's name, I used to think, wow, what a tragedy, because the believer can say, oh, my God, you are my God. He is our God. Notice the way David personalizes it. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And what David is saying is the third reason is he cares for his people in a special shepherd-like providential way. Why should I worship the Lord? Because he brought me through another week. Because he provided for me. Because he forgives my sins. Because he restores my soul. You could take Psalm 23 and shove it through that verse, through verse 7. For people of his pasture the sheep of his hand, and we could say, okay, in Christ, how is God my shepherd? Well, I don't want. I don't lack anything. He's, he's provided me with everything I need. Um, he restores my soul in Christ, constantly granting me repentance and renewal. He, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me to green pastures. When I go through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Um, the same David that wrote Psalm 23 wrote Psalm 95. And he's saying all of God's fatherly, shepherding, providential care. How could you not worship that God? You know, if somebody does something really nice for you, you, you feel a debt to them. You feel an obligation. And somebody does something really nice. Like if somebody does something really nice for me, I thank them like 50 times until they tell me not to thank them anymore. You know, it depends. I mean, if it's just like lunch, it's like, thank you. But if it's, if it's something really significant, I just feel like I need to go back and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's what God's saying. Come, let us enter into his presence with thanksgiving because he's our God. We're his people. We are the people of his pastures. We have all the people on earth. Believers, Christians are the people of God's 
pastures. And he leads us and guides us and shepherds us. That's enough. Those three things. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the providential, loving, fatherly shepherd. And then finally, there is the response. Now, here's what's interesting about this psalm. If you read the first seven verses, it's all a sort of happy, joyful, yes, exuberant, come, let us worship. And then it's like, don't harden your heart or you're going to go to hell. It's that stark. It is, let's go, joyful, noise, praise, song, rejoice, come to God's presence. Don't harden your heart or you're going to perish like all those Israelites perished in the wilderness. Um, Worship is not a spectator sport. It's not entertainment. You know, much, much to my surprise, I've actually said that to other pastors in our denomination who have said, oh, there should be an entertaining element. No, there shouldn't. No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say worship should have an entertaining element. Nowhere. You may want it to, but it doesn't say that in the Bible. What the Bible does say is that there is a response that God commands from his people in worship. And that response is to come and to listen and to believe. And then in believing in the Lord Jesus and trusting in him, working that out through obedience, it is not hardening our hearts in unbelief. That's that's what the writer of Hebrews, when he exposits this psalm, he says, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion that it's very possible for us to hear the voice of God and to harden our hearts in unbelief and to just go back to a sinful lifestyle and not to go forward. The, the way the writer of Hebrews says is not having the word mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the most important thing for us to do when we come to worship is to listen, to hear, to believe, and then to obey. That's that is the progression the scripture is always calling out for us. Now, what, um, <clears throat> what makes all of that possible is what Christ has done. Um, you know, the writer of Hebrews really ties that together. He, he says, you know, the rest that the Israelites couldn't enter into, that was the promised land. That was the typical inheritance. They, they, they didn't enter in because of unbelief. And that was a picture, the writer of Hebrews said, of men and women not entering into the eternal inheritance because of unbelief. And that's the warning. Don't harden your heart because God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. Now, I've already said worship is supposed to have a restful element to it. It's supposed to be, supposed to be us pulling away from everything that burdens us, entering into the presence of God, redirecting our thoughts to him, but it also has um, a foreshadowing element of the eternal rest. It is, it is one Lord's day to another, to another, to another, is, is leading on until that final rest. And the goal for us is to make it into that rest. And here's how we do that. We look to the one who has redeemed us and who has merited that rest for us, who labored for us, who took the wrath we deserve, who came, very interestingly, healing on the day of rest, the Old Covenant Sabbath, and, and, and granting people deliverance from the misery of this life and the forgiveness of sins on the day of rest, so that when he stood and he said, come to me, come to me, there's a call. 
The call to worship begins with hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd saying, Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, You don't work for it. You believe for it. You trust for it. Um, You look to Jesus for it. He has purchased that rest. Um, I've often quoted to you the words of John Bunyan when a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress finally makes it <clears throat> to the cross and his burden rolls off his back and into the tomb and he cries out, he has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. He has given me rest by his sorrows. How, how do I enter into the rest that Israel didn't enter into? I believe in the Lord Jesus. I trust in the great shepherd who gave his life for me. I acknowledge my need for him. I acknowledge that he took all the wrath for me. Um, You know, you never outgrow your need for that. You're never going to have a day where it's, you're like, okay, yeah, I got that. Like, if you ever hit that point, you don't got that. Seriously. We never outneed going to the cross. We go back to go forward. We go back to get the rest, to enter into the rest. We don't harden our hearts. We respond to God's call to worship. You know, the question I want to leave you with is, it's in true biblical Christ-centered, spirit-wrought worship, gathered worship, like what we're doing right now, where the rest is provided. That's, That's... The worship leads to the rest. Worshiping the triune God, listening to him, leads to the rest. So the question is, are you listening to him? The question is, today, if you've heard his voice, are you going to harden your heart? Or are you going to let that word be mixed with faith? And say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. There's a lot of mixture. I feel it. None of my friends are walking with the Lord. They don't seem to see these things. There's all these other religions, all these other little G gods. You got the guy worshiping Damien Gerardo. I don't feel, I don't feel it sometimes. Come, let us worship the Lord. Let us kneel. Let us bow down before the Lord, our maker. Let us bow down before the rock of our salvation and let us find rest for our souls. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would grant us that rest. Today, we acknowledge with, in the great words of Augustine, that our souls are restless until they find rest in you. And Lord, we pray that you would please grant us that rest, that you would soften every heart, that you would not let any in this place harden their hearts, that you would grant all of us the grace to have your word be mixed with faith and to receive it with meekness and to lay aside all hypocrisy and envy and malice and evil speaking and to to go and to read your word and hunger for it as newborn babes, the pure milk. We pray that we would grow and that we would long for that eternal rest. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do all this and more for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.